for you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so our call to worship today, if you would stand, if you would read any underlying portions with me. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Mm. That's John 1, 1 through 14. Amen.
God, we don't have anything to bring except guilt and sin and shame. But you have everything for us. You have invited us into your presence. You've called us and you've said, come, come to the throne of mercy, come to the throne of grace. And so we come. Because of Christ, in his name, through his blood, because he made a new and living way for us. We come and we confess. Lord, we're sinners. We don't deserve you. We don't deserve for you to hear us. We don't deserve for you to hear and answer our prayers. We don't deserve for you to allow us to worship you. What we deserve is to be destroyed, to be condemned, to be ashamed, to be in hell. But Christ is enough to turn all of those things away. Help us to believe. God, we confess in Jesus' name that his blood and his righteousness is enough. We pray that you would apply it to us, forgive us, wash us, make us holy, make us holy because of him. In his name, amen.
declaration I'll part in today comes from Revelation in the fifth chapter. That's a long declaration, but I think it's worthwhile, and I would ask you to uh, read along in the underlying portions with me. Verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb as though it had, standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls, full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and living creatures, and the elders, and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power, and wealth, and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, blessing, and honor, and glory, and might, forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Great. 
couple things I want to say. First of all, um, as those of you who have ever been here before know, we have multiple ways of giving. You can give uh, the traditional way, as we pass the baskets and put your cash or check in that way. Uh, you can also, if you prefer, give online. Uh, if you go to uh, evanvillechurch.com, um, I believe it's going to show up on the screen, maybe Zeke. And uh, you can go there, and you can give that way. You can give through the app. Um, there we go. Yeah, you can give through the app. There's a giving tab on there. Uh, and then also you can give through text message. If you text Evansville to the number on the screen, uh, you can give that way as well. Uh, before we uh, take up our offering, we're going to read this offertory prayer together. Read the underlined portions with me. Almighty God, you have given us everything. Not only did you create us, but you provide for our every need. We give thanks to you, Lord, for you are good. Your love endures forever. When we turned away from you, you reached down to us. You lifted us up and freed us through the gift of your Son. We give thanks to you, Lord, for you are good. Your love endures forever. You are with us always. You watch over our coming and our going. Your Holy Spirit guides us and leads us every step of our lives. We give thanks to you, Lord, for you are good. Your love endures forever. For your abundant grace, we give you thanks. Gratefully, we offer the gifts you first gave us. We give thanks to you, Lord, for you are good. Your love endures forever. Use our time, our talents, and our tithes for your glory. May it bless others with hope, peace, and joy. Amen. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, for this time to be here, to worship you, to sing songs of praise, Lord, to uh, sit under the teaching of your word, the instruction of your word, uh, Lord, and we pray now as we take up our offering, Lord, that uh, you would take our, our giving as an act of worship, Lord, an act of giving to you that which you've already given us, uh, Lord, it all belongs to you in the first place, and for us to give is really an act of worship, uh, to give back to you that you've given us. So, Lord, may we be faithful, may you be honored and pleased with our worship and giving. In Jesus' name, amen. Almighty, 
maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made for us men and for our salvation. He came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate of the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified on the conscious island. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, with the Father and the Son. He is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for forgiveness for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. All right, children, you are dismissed. pleasure to be up here in front of you all again today. I always count it a pleasure, a joy, a privilege to get to uh, preach here at Beamer Fellowship. And it's not something I take lightly. I know I say that a lot. Uh, but I take this responsibility to preach the word very seriously and, um, and want to do it well. Uh, and therefore, I know that I can't do much well on my own. And so before we begin again, uh, I want to open us up in a word of prayer and pray over uh, our lesson today. Oh, you're Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for your word. And Lord, I thank you for the privilege that it is to, Lord, to get to open it up and read it and read your word. God, this is not a book really written by men. Lord, this is a book that you have inspired. This is your word. Lord, we know that when Paul speaks in Scripture, when Peter speaks in Scripture, when the prophets speak in Scripture, Lord, it is you speaking to us. Lord, we acknowledge that. We pray for our time today, Lord, as we study, Lord, the uh, final portion of this, uh, of this Advent series, Lord, that you would be honored, that you would be glorified, and that today, Lord, we would leave here, Lord, just consumed with the joy that is to be found in you and in what it is that you have done for us when you came down to this earth. Lord, I pray as I uh, speak, Lord, that anything I say that would be confusing, or, or straight wrong, Lord, that you would allow that to, to move out of the memories of those that are here, and Lord, that uh, merely your word and your gospel would be preached or go for it. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. If you guys have your Bibles with you, you can go ahead and open up to 1 Corinthians in the 15th chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That's not the only place we're going to be this morning, but that is kind of where we're going to spend the majority of our time is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You just put the first slide up. One more one is fine. We'll get to that. Thank you, Z. So we're here today celebrating the Christmas season, the birth of Jesus. 
I want to start us off today uh, by talking about death. And I know that might seem kind of weird as we celebrate the birth of our Savior this holiday season, but it'll make sense eventually. But I want us to start off by talking about this grim reality that faces all of us. Each and every one of us here today will be faced with the reality of death at some point or another. In fact, every single person who's ever lived on the earth has died, except for two people that are talked about in Scripture, two exceptions. But even with those two exceptions, the odds are still very strong in the favor that you are probably going to die one day, that I am going to die one day, that each and every one of us here, unless Christ should come again, will die one day. No matter how much you exercise, no matter how many essential oils you use, no matter how much kale you eat, each and every one of us is going to die. There's nothing that's going to stop it. It's going to happen. It's coming for all of us. In fact, Ben Franklin said it well when he said, In this world, nothing can be certain except death and taxes. Death and taxes. That's right. Thank you, Sean. Nothing in this world is certain except for death and taxes. And that is so true that death is certain for each and every one of us unless Christ should come. And I'm sure that every single one of us in this room has been touched by death in some form, some fashion, at some time or another, whether it's the death of a loved one, a family member, a friend. Each and every one of us has felt the pain, the sorrow, the grief that is associated with death. In fact, this time of year, for a lot of people, is a time that's not easy. It's a time that's hard because it's a time that reminds them of someone who they've lost, maybe around this time. It merely reminds them of the absence of a loved one and brings up painful memories. Most studies and surveys still indicate that the greatest fear, one of the greatest fears at least, that most people have, in fact, universally across the board, no matter what culture, is a fear of dying. It's a fear that affects all of us. We are afraid of dying. As a society, we try as hard as we can to avoid it with medicines, with exercise, with diet routines, with eating right. All these things, we try to soften the reality of death by using euphemisms such as passing away, or they're gone, or they're done fighting, or they've kicked the bucket, or they've passed on, or they've expired. And we use these euphemisms to try and soften the reality that is true for all of us, that we all see, that we all face, that is death. And the world wonders if there will ever be an answer to death, if there will ever be a solution to death, if death can ever, in fact, be beaten. And many of you already know where I'm going with this, but it is my joy and my privilege to let you know with a resounding and robust yes, that there is in fact an answer to sin. There is a solution to sin. Sin in fact has been beaten. In fact, the gospel story, the story of the good news is the word gospel means, that is, that is told in scripture, has at its climax Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior, defeating death and experiencing resurrection and return to life. So now we as believers cry out along with Job, Job chapter 19, verse 25, for I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth. This is the hope that Job had. Not that one day he would have a lot of money, not that one day he would get his stuff back. Job's hope was that the one who would redeem his soul 
would one day live forever. <coughs> that he would be redeemed, and that, and that this man, Jesus Christ, though he maybe didn't know his name, would redeem him and had the power even over death and would live eternally. But Job's hope doesn't end there. He continues after verse 25, verse 26 in Job chapter 19, and says, After my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. You see, even Job had hope of a coming resurrection. The coming of a time when even though he has died, he would in his flesh see God. This is Job's hope. A hope in the promise of the resurrection from the dead. And that's the same hope that we have in Christ. And at this we turn our attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and our first point. Which is the promise of bodily resurrection and redemption from Adam's fall. So as Paul's writing in this 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, before we dive into our text, he's writing in a very typical Paul style. He's writing in a style that's very logical, very reasoned, presenting arguments, countering arguments. He writes this book in a very similar way that he writes, or this chapter in a very similar way that he writes Romans. If you read Romans, you'll notice, if you read Romans through, as, as me and Sean and Matt and Robert are doing right now, Paul is just presenting this logical argument, this reasoning of, of justification, salvation by faith alone, grace alone, and Christ alone. And he's presenting this to the church at Rome in a logical, reasoning fashion, even anticipating the arguments that are come back, going to come back at him. Like, well, this is what people might say to this, and here's how I would respond to them. And it's just very logical, very reasoned argumentation, asserting truth claims, even, even anticipating challengers' responses. And he's writing in this chapter the same way. He's responding to the news that he has heard from some in Corinth who deny the resurrection from the dead. As we see in verse 12 of chapter 15, he says, Now if Christ has proclaimed his race from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? So this is the purpose of Paul's writing to the, to the church at Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he's, he's saying, Hey, I caught wind of this. I've heard that some of you are denying the reality of this, the truth. Of a resurrection from the dead, you're saying it can't happen. You're saying that death is death. When you're dead, you're done. That's it. Death is dead, and there's no resurrection from the dead. And so Paul begins to chip away at this at this idea of, of a no resurrection, that there is no resurrection from the dead. And he begins to chip away at this. He starts off his argument, the first section of chapter 15, by pointing out the empirical evidence of Christ's resurrection. He says, hey, if you say there's no resurrection from the dead, then Christ wasn't raised. Well, indeed, Christ was raised, and here's evidence. He points to all the people who saw Christ after he died and rose again. He says, Cephas saw him, the twelve saw him, James saw him, all the apostles saw him, and even more than 500 people at one time saw the resurrected Christ. And many of them are still alive today. You could go talk to them yourself and hear them say, yes, I saw Christ after he was crucified and buried, and he had risen again. So he says, here's the empirical evidence. So this happened. Like, I'm telling you, like, look, there's empirical evidence. He then begins reasoning with them as to the ramifications of what it would mean if indeed Christ had not been risen from the dead. And the conclusion that he comes to in verses 17 through 19, many of us have heard this verse, is that if Christ has not been dead, been raised, then your faith is useless, that you are still dead in your sins. 
that Christians who have died have indeed perished. And even more than that, that we, above all people, are most to be pitied. If this reality is not true, that Christ did not rise from the dead, was resurrected, then all of this is true. Those people who have died have perished, they're gone, no hope for them, that we are still dead in our sin, and that the world should look at us and feel sorry for us. We should be pitied more than anyone else if this is not true. And he's right. If it's true that Christ did not rise from the dead, then he was indeed nothing more than a man, and we are still dead in our sins. We are still lost. So we have put all of our chips on the wrong person, on the wrong horse. That's what Paul says. And this is where we find in the next verse, chapter, uh, chapter 15, verse, starting in verse 20. And this is the text that I first want us to, to hone in on this morning. Starting in verse 20. It's on the screen. Take easy. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Paul asserts the truth, asserts to the church of Corinth. He says, I have told you Christ is risen from the dead. All these people have witnessed him after his resurrection. And now, let me tell you something else. Paul goes on to tell them that not only is all of this true, but because it's true that Christ has been raised from the dead, it's also true that those of us who are in Christ will one day be raised from the dead also. He says, yes, Christ has been risen from the dead. And I, uh, one friend of mine who preached this passage said he preached it like a, like a Billy Mays sermon. Because that's kind of how Paul presents it. He said, yes, Christ wait, was raised from the dead. But wait, there's more. Not only has Christ been risen from the dead, but we also will one day rise from the dead and experience resurrection. That's what Paul goes on to say. Paul goes on to tell them that not only is it true that Christ was raised from the dead, but we also will be raised from the dead. That we will experience a resurrection just like Christ. That Christ is indeed the first fruits of those in Christ who have died. When he says this term, first fruits, what is he saying here? He, he's saying Jesus Christ, and, and they would have understood what he was saying. All the Jews and Gentiles in this time would have understood this kind of agricultural terminology that he's using of first fruits. Because when you would plant a harvest, and then when it was time for that harvest to grow, and it was time to, to reap the harvest... I mean, they were a little different than us. I mean, they didn't have big combines, right, where they basically planted it all at one time and like, put it on the ground at the same time. You would put it in the ground in different installments, different portions, different sections. And when that first section came to fruit and began to bear fruit, that was what they called the first fruits. And in Jewish custom, the first fruits would be what you would then take to the priest and offer as a sacrifice. These first fruits that would be offered up to God. But not only was it a sacrifice for the Jews, but even Gentile, the Gentile audience would have understood when he says first fruits here, what he's talking about is he's saying there's more to come. That Christ is the first fruits. It was the first that was brought up. But when we see those first fruits, when they bear fruit, when they come forth, we now know that the rest of the harvest is coming. That this is hope of a coming full harvest. 
It has been a sign or a seal or a promise of the coming harvest. Therefore, so the fruits are a sign or a guarantee of a coming full harvest. So then Christ, as the first fruits of those who have died in him, is a sign or a guarantee of a coming resurrection for all believers who have died. In other words, Christ was, was the first fruit. He was a sign of symbol, meaning because Christ has died, we now all, and not just because he has died, but because Christ has been raised from the dead, been resurrected, and is the first fruits of more that is to come, that means we are the harvest that is to come. That us who are in Christ, and that those who have fallen asleep in Christ, who have died in Christ, we are going to be harvested later. We are going to be raised from the dead. We are that coming harvest. That he is merely a, that he, not merely, that he is a sign or a promise of our coming resurrection. In verse 21 and 22, Paul uses similar language to what he uses in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. He says in Romans 5, 12, he says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. So that's when, when sin entered the world, was through this one man, Adam. And by this one man's sin, now all have been cursed. All experienced death, all died because of Adam's sin. Paul draws a strong parallel between Adam and Christ, both in Romans and here in 1 Corinthians. Adam, in Genesis 1 through 3, was what we call our federal head, meaning that Adam represented all of mankind in the garden. In other words, when he rebelled against God, the curse of sin, which led to death, entered the world because of this one man's sin. That all of us now experience death, are cursed by sin because of Adam's sin because he represented us as our federal head. And we are so often, I know I hear this all the time, people are so often to scoff at this and to, to balk at this and say, well, that's not fair. How on earth is it true and can it be true that because this guy sinned, I now am going to die and pay the punishment, face the penalty because of his sin. I didn't eat the fruit. Adam ate the fruit. Why on earth do I get punished because of him, why is he representing me? And we don't like it. We claim how unfair that is and how much we hate it. But the second part of verse 21 and the second part of verse 22 is the truth that should make us shut up this reasoning right away. Because just like we all received the curse by this one man's sin, we all died because of Adam's sin, we all received eternal life through one man's sin sacrifice. I mean, read in the second portion of these texts, of verses 21 and 22. It says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So the same logic, the same headship idea that we scoff at, that we say, no, that's not fair, that we should all be punished because of Adam's sin. That's the same reality that is going to bring us life. That through one man's death, through one man's sacrifice, we now can have resurrection from the dead, eternal life, joy and hope to the fullest in Christ. But you never hear anyone complain about that being unfair. No one ever says it's not fair that I should be rewarded for Christ's righteousness because he died on the cross for me. But that's true. It's the same reality. And that's the distinction that's being drawn. He does it again in the same chapter in 
and 1 Corinthians 15, down in 45 through 49, says this, Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural. And then the spiritual, verse 47. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are we dust. As is the man of heaven, so also are those who are in heaven. Just as we have been, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. In other words, the same reality that we hate of sin and death entering the world through one man, we rejoice in the fact that hope and joy and life eternal and resurrection from the dead has now come and been made available to us through the sacrifice of one man, Jesus Christ. So the next time someone complains that it's not fair that we all get punished for Adam's sin, point them straight to this and say, hey, no, what's not fair is that we should receive Christ's righteousness because of his work on the cross. That's not fair. What hope this brings to us. So I want to say really quick, though, for believers, this means that in Christ, we now say to death, too bad, so sad. You've lost. Victory is not yours anymore. It is Christ's. Because in Christ, we have won victory over death. Which leads to our next point. Victory over death and sin. And I want to say really quickly that this victory that we have over death does not mean that as believers, we rejoice in death. We do not rejoice in death. We do not enjoy funerals. We do not rejoice even in the death of believers. You hear a lot of people talking about this kind of thing. People say, oh, at my funeral, I don't want you to cry. I don't want any flowers. Uh, I want it to be a party. I want there to be balloons, and I want you to be happy and, and making jokes and all this stuff. And I understand the sentiment that's being made there, but what is really true is that because that person died, their death is a graphic reminder that they were indeed a sinner. And that death has entered the world because of sin. So we don't, we don't rejoice at funerals. We don't laugh. We don't rejoice at the death of individuals, even those who have fallen asleep, who have died in Christ. We don't rejoice in that because it's still a graphic reminder of the reality of sin. So we do not celebrate in death. But rather, we mourn with those who mourn. We cry with those who cry. Ecclesiastes 3, 4 tells us, we read that there is a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. We do not celebrate at the death of anyone, but we do have hope and joy that death is not the end for those who are in Christ, but that there is coming a day when the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised and will be raised in new, resurrected, bodies that are imperishable and incorruptible. And that's what Paul gets at in verse 51 and following in chapter 15. Look with me. Verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body 
must put on immortality. What hope this brings to us that one day we will be given new bodies, resurrected bodies that are imperishable, that are no longer facing and undergoing the decay and the hardship and the pain and the sorrow that we go through in these bodies. We will receive glorified bodies, bodies like Christ had after his resurrection. Those are the kind of bodies that we will receive. These old bodies that we have now will be old news. And the decay and disease that accompany them will be old news too. I can't help but think as I was preparing this sermon and I was thinking about this, this idea of a new body, a resurrected body, a glorified body, and what the alternative is that we're, we have right now, these old bodies, and we see the decay, we see the sin, we see the effects of it. I can't help but think about my grandma. I called her Memo, and so I'm going to refer to her as Memo as I preach. But my Memo, um, last, just this last year, died of dementia. And I've had people even ask me before about somebody with dementia and whether or not that person can lose their salvation. And I think back to my memo, and as her dementia began to get worse, and she was in the nursing home, and we would go to visit her, and she would, it got to the point where she could barely remember anything. She could remember our names, usually, uh, but that was about it, and she could remember her own name. But most things, like her birthday, what year it was, um, pretty much all memory beyond the past two minutes um, was, just, was just gone. But her nursing home was right across the street from her sister's home, one of her sister's homes. And she would love to just walk over there. We came and visited her a lot of times. We would end up you know, checking her out and walking her across the street so she could see her sister. They were very close. Uh, always had been since they were young. And I will never forget as my grandma being affected by dementia the way she was couldn't tell you what year it was. Couldn't tell you what happened from that morning during breakfast. As we sat there in the kitchen, my lost aunt, her lost sister's table, and her sister talked about wondering if she had done enough good things to go to heaven. Because her other Catholic sister says, well, you got to do good. you got to do good things to go to heaven. And she said, I don't know if I've done good things to go to heaven. How do you ever know? And my memo, who... Couldn't remember anything. Then broke out into a gospel presentation to her lost sister. Reminding her, telling her, Ruby, you can't do anything to save yourself. It's not based on what we do. It's not based on our good works. It's based on Christ and what he's done. And you can't do it. You have to have faith in Jesus to be saved, Ruby. And my mom couldn't remember anything. And honestly, when we went back to the nursing home, she couldn't have told you what she told Ruby just a few minutes ago. But man, what a hope that brought to me and what joy that brings to me to know that even in the last stages of my memo's dementia, when she couldn't remember, barely remember anyone's name, man, she, she didn't forget the gospel that saved her. But there's more to it than this. If my memo, sitting in that situation, had been unable to articulate the gospel to my aunt, I know without a shadow of a doubt that does not mean that my memo was not saved. Because my memo was suffering in a body that was perishable, a body that was mortal, a body that was suffering decay and sin and affected by that and headed towards death. And though me, she may have forgotten how to articulate the gospel at some point in her life, 
Christ never forgot her. Never once. And the hope that I have that one day my memo would be raised from the grave, resurrected into a new body, and could no longer be touched by dementia, that no longer will she forget anything, no longer will she forget how to articulate the gospel, but will rejoice in it even more, along with me and my resurrected body. But what a joy that is to know that the effects that we see of sin and death and decay here on this earth, they're not going to touch our resurrected bodies. They're not. We will be free from that, and we rejoice in that. And I can barely contain my joy when I think about the reality of this. <laughs> Folks, this is a true coming event. This is not symbolic. This is not metaphorical. This is something that is actually, literally going to happen. That we will be raised from the dead, but one day the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, and those of us who are still alive will be changed. What a mystery that is, but what joy that brings to us. The hope that can be found there. When we read in Ecclesiastes, he says, there's a time to mourn and there's a time to dance. Folks, that will be the time to dance. When we are in our resurrected bodies, joined together with the loved ones that we've lost, that we've grieved over, we'll fall asleep in Christ. And Paul, as he's writing to the church at Corinth, he can barely contain it either. He leaves logical reasoning style of writing behind. So captivated by the, the reality of the resurrection that he bursts out into this great proclamation of joy and praise that we see in verse 45 through 47 in our chapter here. In verse 40, or 54, excuse me. He says in verse 54 and following, When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your sting? O oh, death, where is your victory? Your sting, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us cry out with Paul in joy and praise at the reality that is coming for us who are in Christ. This is true. That's Paul's joy. He can't contain it. He busts out in, in praise and worship, reciting Old Testament prophets and joy of what is going to come. And then our final point, the glorification of the Messianic victim. As, the, as, the, as Handel's Messiah begins to come to a close, I love the last Scene, the picture that is painted for us at the close of this work. It's a picture of Christ in glory. Christ in heaven, next to his Father on the throne. And it's the same thing that we already read for our assurance of grace. And I was so struck by this chapter as I was reading as I, and as I was preparing today, the way John describes the scene and the situation. It makes you feel almost like you're like you're there witnessing what is taking place here as he talks about the God the Father who is seated on the throne and has the scroll in his hand with the, with the seven seals in it. And the angel declares out and asks the question, who is it that is worthy to open this scroll, break the seals, and read what is inside of it? And there's silence. No one. There's not a single person in heaven or on earth or under the earth who steps forward and says, I'm, 
I'm worthy. I can do it. There's not a single person who's worthy. No one to be found worthy. And if you notice where the scroll is, you kind of see why. The scroll is in the right hand of God the Father on the throne. Who is it that is worthy to approach the throne of God? None of us are. No one is. Save one person. John begins to weep, it says. Begins to weep, and then one of the elders, representing somebody in the church, says to him, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah is here. He's worthy to open the scroll. And then he looks up and sees, next to the throne of Christ, or next to the throne of God, Christ standing. And even though he was described as a lion previously, what does he see? Does he see a lion? No, he sees a lamb. He sees the lamb that was slain. He is the one who's worthy. He takes the scroll. He can read it. Guys, that lamb that was slain is the one who's interceding for us. We are not worthy to approach the throne of God. We are not worthy to come up to the throne room of God, but Christ is. And he intercedes for us to God the Father. He's the one who's worthy. Contrast this chapter with, with what we touched on a little bit last week and what we preached on previously in Isaiah chapter 53. In Isaiah 53, we see the story of the, the prophecy of the coming suffering servant, the lamb who was slain. In Isaiah 53, contrast that with the, the suffering servant, with this glorious figure that we see here in Revelation 5. No longer as the suffering servant, but rather as the victorious conqueror, the one who is worthy of opening the scroll, and the one who deserves blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. This is Christ. Jesus Christ died. He entered the grave, and he came out the other side in power and victory, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God, and is worthy to open the scroll, worthy to be worshipped. And that is exactly what happens at the end of Revelation chapter 5. I'm going to read it for you. You can turn there if you want. Chapter 9 says this, or verse 9 says this, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, the praise doesn't end, then I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering in the myriads of myriads. If you don't know myriads, it means a number that's beyond measure, a number that you can't even count. Myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The praise doesn't end there. And in verse 13, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Christ, the first fruits of all who will be raised from the dead, stands victorious and worthy of praise and honor and glory. And he alone is worthy. As we conclude today, I know there's a, a, a fair number of you that might be wondering why on earth I've talked so much about the resurrection. It seems like I've forgotten that this was Christmas and not 
Easter, because we've talked so much about the resurrection from the dead. But the reason that I'm talking so much about the resurrection, that this is the point of the end of Handel's Messiah, that this is the point that I want to make as we celebrate the Christmas season, is that when we think about this time of year, the resurrection is the reason that Christ came. The resurrection is what makes Christmas so important. It's true that if it were not for Christmas, Easter wouldn't have happened. But it is equally true that if, if it had not been for Easter, then Christmas would not have mattered. Christ's resurrection is the culmination of what Christ's advent was pointing to. This is the end game. This is the climax of Christ's work here on earth. And we desperately need to understand this, lest we go through the Christmas season, year after year, Christmas after Christmas, thinking only of Christ as we see him in our, in our nativity scenes, and in our paintings, and in the songs that we sing as this little baby who's in a manger, and nothing more than just a cute little baby. Because what we are celebrating is far more than just a simple birth. The angels in Luke chapter 2 did not come to the shepherds and proclaim, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a great teacher. They didn't come and say, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a really cute baby. They proclaimed, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That is the hope. That is the joy that is found in the birth of Christ. And what is going to happen? What he's going to do, what he's going to save us from, how he's going to redeem us, Forgive us of our sins and raise us to new life in Him. This is our Messiah. This is the Lamb who was slain, the Lion of Judah, the Savior of the world, the one with the power to defeat death. He has come to accomplish our redemption. Praise be to God. The world around us knows about Jesus in the manger. They do. They, they've heard the story. They know that it's closely affiliated with Jesus. I mean, it was in... Sting of Charlie Brown for crying out loud. They have heard the story of Jesus, most likely. But what the world doesn't know and desperately needs to hear is that that little baby went on to live a perfect life, to die a criminal's death, to die on a cross, was buried in a tomb, and was raised from death to life, destroying the last enemy, which was death, and is the first fruits of the resurrection that is to come for all who are in him. That is what the world desperately needs to know. That is what Lioness should have said. And that is what we need to remember as we celebrate the advent of our Savior, Jesus Christ, this year. But, folks, this only matters. This only makes a difference for those who believe in Jesus as the Son of God. And trust in Him as their Lord and Savior of their life. Because the difference between our inheritance of sin from Adam and eternal life that comes through Christ is the necessity of faith. Whether or not you believe in a literal Adam who sinned and now you are fallen and are going to experience death, it's kind of irrelevant to whether or not you'll experience death. Guess what? Everyone is going to experience death. But those who experience the resurrection from the dead that's going to come through Christ are only those with their faith and trust in Him as Lord and Savior to believe in Him. Jesus Himself said it in John 11:25. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you, Lord. 
that you came down to this earth on mission. We thank you for what it is that you've done, Lord, that you were not just a good teacher. You were not just a baby born. You were not just a prophet. Whatever good thing we could come up with that you might have been the fall short of God incarnate is not what you were. Lord, you were the land that was slain, the conquering, suffering servant. And Lord, the baby that was born in Bethlehem all those years ago was not just a baby. It was the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the Redeemer, who we now say, along with Job, I know that my Redeemer lives because that grave is empty. And so Lord, we praise you for that. I pray today, Lord, that this reality would sink into our hearts, that it would affect us, that you would convict us of our sin. And that, Lord, if there's anyone in this place today, Lord, that is pondering these things, may you work on their heart. May you draw them to yourself so that they, too, might experience resurrection from the dead, new life in you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Uh, we're going to take up communion now. A few things that we go over every time we take communion, but I'm going to go over again. If you are a follower of Christ, member of a church, or at least seeking membership of a church, and are not living in a state of unrepentant sin, we invite you to take the Lord's Supper today. But if you do not meet those criteria, if you have not been baptized, if you are not a follower of Christ, if you are not a member or seeking membership of a local church, or if you have sin in your heart that you need to confess and seek reconciliation, even if it's with someone else, we would ask that at this time you would do that uh, before we take the Lord's Supper. If I could, uh, I'll take Sean, if you would come up, and Kyle to help me for the Lord's Supper today. So again, I just want to say, if, if there is anything in your heart, life, any sin that you need to repent of, please do that before you take today. And also, as we begin, wait until everyone has uh, the bread and the juice, and we'll take it, take it together as a church family. I believe we have a communion reading. All right. Our communion reading is like this, and if you would, please read the underlined portion. Now let us hear the story of how this sacrament began. On the night which Jesus was betrayed, he sat at supper with his disciples. While they were eating, he took a piece of bread, said a blessing, broke it, and gave it to them with the words, This is my body, which is for you. Do this, and rem do this in to remember me. Later he took the cup, saying, This cup is God's covenant, sealed with my blood. Drink from it, all of you. To remember me. So now, following Jesus' example and command, we take this bread and this cup, the ordinary things of the world, which Christ will use for extraordinary purposes. And as he has said a prayer before sharing, let us do so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, you deserve praise and honor and glory in our worship, Lord, because of what you've done for us. Today, as we take the the bread and the juice, Lord, I pray that we would recognize that this is not an act that somehow saves us, that somehow makes us in better standing before you. But God, this is something that we do in remembrance of what it is that you have done for us. 
that your body was broken for us. Your blood was shed on our behalf so that we might experience forgiveness of sins. So Lord, we pray that today as we do this, that it would be pleasing to you. We do it out of a heart of worship. Lord, a heart that has a desire to honor and obey you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. said, this is the body of Christ, broken for you. Take it. This cup represents the blood of Christ that was shed for you.
all be seated. Just a couple of announcements. There's probably more announcements than this, but here's what I can remember. Our uh, uh, app is up and running, and you should all download it. Uh, like David said last week, this is what I've been using to do all of the uh, liturgy, the responsive readings, and every, everything. So please download that app. It keeps you up to date on everything that is going on and um, uh, has scriptures, all, all kinds of stuff uh, that you can do on there. Uh, so that's the first announcement. The only other announcement I have is that uh, we do not have a Christmas Eve service. A lot of churches do, um, uh, but we do not have one. Uh, as Matt has said before, we've done a Christmas service basically the past like four weeks. And so uh, spend Christmas Eve with your family. You can go to their churches if you would like. A lot of other churches have um, Christmas Eve service that you're willing. Uh, I would encourage you to go to, to one if you so choose. Um, but, uh, but we will not be having one here. I didn't want anyone to show up thinking we were. Now, you can show up. St. Mark's is having a Christmas Eve service, um, I think, early. I think at uh, 3.45. So if you are interested in a mid-afternoon Christmas Eve service, you can come here and uh, join them there. As they have invited us, we are welcome. So, uh, so you're welcome to that as well. That's all the announcements I have. You would stand back up for our benediction today. Wonderful and fitting benediction today. It comes from Luke chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Go now in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Peace be with you. And also with you. Percent.